from Kurtco Media. A car reflects beauty, it reflects technological knowledge, it reflects the idea of freedom, of wealth, the pure fun of speeding up. There's a part of danger in cars. Cars are seen as family members. People talk to their cars, they caress their cars. And I think that makes cars so powerful as consumer objects of the 20th century. That was the voice of Bert Voot, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. Welcome to Cars That Matter. My guest today is Bert Voot, all the way from Ghent, Belgium. Bert is a lifestyle journalist and co-author of a pretty amazing book called architecture, houses with horsepower. His co-authors are Thies Dim Eulemeister and photography is by Thomas de Bruyne. It's published by Lanu. And this is a pretty remarkable book, not just for car enthusiasts, but for people who are interested in design and of course, architecture. Architecture in the 20th century and 21st century would not be complete without the automobile. Welcome to the program, Bert. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is a pretty amazing volume. It's beautifully produced. Of course, the photography is absolutely exquisite. I should say that mixing architecture and cars could end up being a rather superficial endeavor. You could put supercars in front of exciting buildings and it would be great. But this book is infinitely deeper than that. It's not just eye candy, but there are a lot of really probing observations, some great quotes and fascinating contrasts between buildings and cars. Just to set the stage for our audience, there are six chapters that kind of travel the world. They end up in California with some of the case study houses. And there are five very probing essays that talk about everything from Art Deco to Le Corbusier to Sobs and uh, (laughs) Frank Lloyd Wright, just all over the map. This book's been a really inspired collaboration, I can tell. How did this book come about? I visit car collectors since about seven years for a magazine which is called Sabato. It's a weekend magazine, a supplement of the Belgian newspaper, The Tête. It's a business newspaper. And I have a weekly column there visiting a car collector every week. A few years ago, my colleague Thais, he introduced the idea. And Thais, as a specialist in architecture, he came up with the idea. And so we started to search for great pictures with great buildings and beautiful cars, which can tell a story. Unfortunately, we could not travel the world to look for the buildings and to drive the cars ourselves. So what we did is looking in on the net and in books to find good images with a story. Well, interestingly, it would appear that all of these images are very contiguous, very uniform in their approach to picturing the cars in an architectural setting. And I have to say some stunning contrasts and some very interesting cars too, cars that one might not ordinarily imagine. So instead of the usual suspects, all the contemporary supercars, you might have something as quotidian as a Volkswagen Beetle or an old Mercedes E-Class. And yet, looking at these cars in context makes you appreciate them all the more. These are really, really important vehicles. Let me ask you, how long did it take to produce this book? Between the first ideas and the finalizing of the book, I think there was just a little bit more than a year, I think. Where can our listeners get this book? How is it available? It's available, in fact, in the independent bookshops. I think online, you can find them on the site bookshop.org. It's also available 
available via Barnes and Noble in the USA and on Amazon. Classical Gas is the first chapter, and it really shows cars in front of castles in Italy, Belgium, France, England, some of the grand estates of Europe, and architecture certainly that we do not have in the United States, where strip malls are more abundant than some of the grand structures that are a part of Europe's history. How did those buildings and cars come about? How did you put those together? For instance, in the Belgian castle, were the cars a part of the architecture? Yes. In fact, that image, it's one of the collectors that I visited myself. There are a few in the book. For this book, what we did was looking for a similarity between a car and a building was one thing. That was one option. It could be in form, in the aesthetics between both, and sometimes it's merely colors, but it gives a good photograph. It can be in the composition, but it could also be in the character of the car. Like we have that chapter on brutalism. Well, brutal buildings and brutal cars can come together, of course. But as you mentioned, also contrasts are a possibility. You can have a sleek, fine-shaped car, which is a brutal beast, in fact. In, in the book, there is the Alfa Romeo. It's one of my favorite cars, the Tipo tree tree which looks very fine and very light as a car but in fact it's a beast it's a race car for the road i particularly love that photograph with the type 33 stradale in what appears to be a large concrete structure a brutalist concrete structure in china if i'm not mistaken an incredible setting for what we probably have to acknowledge as one of the greatest cars ever made but it's remarkable to see that in the book by the same token i'm looking at a beautiful brick facade in notting hill and there's a remarkable car there one that we certainly never see in America. It's an old BMW type 502. A 502, yes. But to be honest, it's a wonderful car. But when I saw the image the first time, I had to look it up as well. I didn't recognize the car immediately, but it is a wonderful car. It has a lot of history. In fact, the car is from 1952, and it was the very first post-war BMW. There was a first prototype by a certain Peter Shimanovsky, which was rejected at first, and BMW went to Pininfarina. But they came up with a design which was very similar to that of an old Alfa Romeo in 1900. In the end, it was uh, Shimanovsky's design who was chosen. After we made the book, I was lucky to visit a very big BMW collector here in Belgium. And there I met the car. And it is, uh, it's a wonderful car. It certainly is. And an opulent thing long before BMW became a household name and known for its 1600 and 2002. This was a car that was every bit on par with the most luxurious Mercedes-Benz of the post-war era. I mean, really an incredible thing and a considerable rarity today. So it's, it's nice to see something as unusual in this in your book. They call it the Baroque Angel. The Baroque Angel. Well, it is true. Of course, just as the Baroque made way for subsequent movements, the same thing happened in cars and architecture. Coming to terms with the automobile in the first couple of decades of the 20th century was something that we can barely imagine today. Day. I mean, things were changing. Modernism was being born. You look at architects like Adolf Luce and Vienna, his Ornament and Crime was an essay and lecture that railed against ornament in all its forms. Yet he called the automobile an exemplary object that combines the virtue of economy and beauty 
of utility and form. And I think architects were starting to realize the potential and the magic of these cars and how cars were so interwoven with what would become life in the 20th century once the horse was no longer a, a viable mode of transport. Well, that was the beginning of a whole movement and of an incredible thing that happened with cars, I think. Maybe I should say something about my general appreciation for cars. It comes a bit when you're a child, when you're unconscious about why it happens that you are so passionate about cars. But maybe this, what you just said about modernity and, and modernism, at the time, at the end of the 19th century, there was this general spirit of optimism and of modernity. In architecture, we saw functionalism in which practicality was key. The old art with ornaments was replaced by simplicity and geometry, in fact. Also, modern materials like concrete, prefabricated materials came into the architecture. And cars in that new modern world, cars were developing themselves as key symbols in a world which became smaller and smaller, but also faster and faster. It was the start of individual transport. According to my opinion, cars became the most significant and the most layered objects in the 20th century. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about this passion. There's an interesting book written by two psychologists from Oxford that was written 30 or 40 years ago. It's called Car Passion. And they write about all those layers that are incorporated in cars. And that's the reason why they are so important in the, in the 20th century and, and the most significant consumer object of the 20th century. A car reflects beauty, it reflects technological knowledge, it reflects the idea of freedom, of wealth, the pure fun of speeding up. There's a part of danger in cars. Cars are seen as family members, people talk to their cars, they caress their cars. And I think that makes cars so powerful as consumer objects of the 20th century. In your book, the essay on Corbusier is especially interesting to a car person. Certainly his architecture is world-renowned and he had a huge influence along with other luminaries of the era, Mies van der Rohe and Marcel Breuer. But I think Corbusier probably more than anyone of the period. But he was also a real car person. Can you tell our audience a little bit about him and his influence on architecture and the automobile? He is totally into that spirit of the early 1900s. He was the co-founder of the magazine L'Esprit Nouveau, so the new spirit, which covered a broad spectrum of arts. But indeed, he, he was a keen of cars. We write that he could have been called Le Carbusier instead of Le Corbusier. He was a big car enthusiast. He had a voisin, which was a French pre-war car brand, car manufacturer and aircraft as well. They are famous for their very aerodynamic uh, design. Wonderful things and wonderful cars and as free of ornament as any could be. Those were purposeful machines. Slab-sided, some of them with incredible curves and lines that no other car has ever had. So he had one of these, which he drove pretty hard, and he didn't mind when there were some mechanical issues. He really used his car. But in our book, in that essay, we show that he had a lot of attention to the dialogue, in fact, between houses and cars. When he designed a house, he had a lot of attention on, for example, how you drive a car up to the side of the house, how you reach the parking how you reach the garage. That was crucial when he thought up 
a house. Almost a part of the architectural experience. In other words, how do you view the house? Well, typically one would view it from the seat of an automobile as you come up the gravel drive and eventually situate the car either in front of the house or in a designated parking spot underneath. It's part of the of the fun of driving a car and of enjoying a house, I think. Well, let's talk about French cars for a minute. Obviously, the Voisin was an exceptional outlier, both in terms of design and its influence on Corbusier and vice versa. In fact, I think he even designed his own Voisin, if I'm not mistaken. Am I right? Did he design a body or do some drawings for a proposed Voisin shape? In the 20s, he wanted to develop his own car. At the time, he tried to develop La Voiture Minimum, so the, the minimalistic car, very minimalistic and a very functional car. It was a sort of a forerunner for the Citroën 2CV and the Volkswagen Beetle. A spacious, cheap, efficient car with lots of light. But the project stuck at the concept phase. It wasn't really built. But there were certainly other French cars too, with coach builders hugely influenced by or influencing what we would call today Art Deco. Let's talk about some of those cars and some of those makers. In the book, you've got everything from Citroën to Peugeot. What was going on in France? In France, well, maybe the Art Deco is quite important to that respect, no? But it wasn't only French cars, but still around 1925, you have the mutual influence between architecture and car design was very intense at that time. In Europe, that evolved to cars like Delaye and Delage, the French cars. You had the Talbot Lago, which was an unbelievable car brand. Maybe they, I think, to my opinion, they made maybe the most beautiful car in the world. The 150 SS teardrop is hard to beat, isn't it? (laughs) It is, it is. And in the US, you have one of these cars. I, I don't know by heart how many of these were made, maybe eight or something. But there's one in the Peter Mullins Museum Museum in California. And that car, the T150CSS, if I'm right, it was inspired by a simple drop of water, which is probably the most aerodynamic form ever. It's one of the most beautiful cars uh, in the world. Talking about aerodynamics, there's a fascinating essay in your book on Saab. Now, Saab is a car brand that most Americans have very little familiarity with. And we think of pipe smoking college professors back in the 60s driving Saabs. But beyond that, we don't really have much experience with them. But there's an essay in your book, Why Saab Was the Architect's Car Par Excellence. Tell us a little bit about that. It's a stereotype, of course, but here in Europe, Saabs are really seen as the architect's car. It probably is because Saabs have always been a bit artistic. They have been perceived always like a sort of mixture between a Volvo, which is safe and strong and Swedish as well. But between a Volvo, a Mercedes, which is solid and reliable, and a BMW, which is sporty, or even a Porsche. In the 80s, the Saab turbos, they were already in the 70s, but certainly in the 80s, they were quite quick. The 900 turbo was a fantastic car. Well, the Saabs, so they were not necessarily better than their competitors, but they were different and they were very Scandinavian. And architects, they love Scandinavian things. They were well built and durable and very well designed as well. You were talking about aerodynamics. The very first Saab, the Ursaab in 1947, was a miracle of aerodynamics. That was reflective of their involvement in aviation. They're actually an aircraft builder. Yes, and that's very clear in the very first car. But also later, the design always stayed very 
unconventional until General Motors came up, I think in 1989, when GM bought half of the shares of Saab. But during the history, Saab was very special and very individual as well. There's a photograph in the book of a Saab 92 that is absolutely exquisite. The thing looks like it's ready to take flight. And it really had me thinking about Saabs. I ended up doing kind of a deep dive to get to know those cars a little bit better. And I can certainly see the allure and appreciate why a purist, and that's what most architects are, would appreciate these things. They were obsessed with safety as well. They had the first headlight wipers on their cars, the first protective beams in the doors. They always spent a lot of attention to ecology as well. In fact, the turbo engine, which appeared in 1977 was a matter of ecology as well. They always refused, for example, to use diesel and so on. And all these things make them a car for architect. They're practical as well. And like a Saab Coupe, a 900, I own one myself, so, so I know it. The trunk is amazingly big. It's very handy and still it's a beautiful car. We'll be right back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Bert Voot. You've got a chapter in the book called Brutal Power. In Brutal Power, you've got some truly amazing photographs. Of course, the brutal power is the architecture, concrete, metal, stone. And there are a lot of cars that do reflect that aesthetic. The cars that one might not ordinarily think of, they're not necessarily even powerful machines in the case of, say, a Volkswagen, but in their spirit and their purpose, they really, really belong in some of these architectural settings. A couple of my favorites were the Maserati B-Turbo and the Citroen SM. You've got a Land Rover Defender, even a Vector W8. Give us an example of brutal power, both in architecture and in cars. Well, I think there, the Alfa Romeo Tipo 33 comes back, the Stradale. We have shown that car before an abandoned textile factory in Shenzhen in China, which was turned into a complex, a living complex or an artistic studio complex. But there you have a building of concrete and steel and the car itself, it looks sleek. It has thin aluminum bodywork. It weighs only 700 kilos, but it is brutal power, of course. And it has a very noisy two liter V8 engine. That little engine worked hard, but man, it sounded good. Yeah, it's one of the rarest cars in the world. And I think if one of these appears in the United States, for example, at Pebble Beach, even there, it will be a head turner. You've got some other brutal cars in there too. The Maserati Biturbo you mentioned is a good example as well. It stands before a very angular facade. It's called Formula Automobile. It's the new showroom of Ferrari and Maserati and in Denmark, in Copenhagen. There you have a perfect match between the architecture and the car. What I like about the car, because in fact, it's one of my favorites in the book as well. At first sight, the car is nothing special, but any car geek know it is very special. It has a very vivid character. It uses noble materials in the interior, beautiful leather and wood. It is a very special car. And you have the brutal power from the engine, but at the same 
time, it's a rather fragile car mechanically. Yes, they were known to light themselves on fire, but I think it was really no fault of the overarching design. It was just some of the technical aspects of the induction system and those little turbos didn't tend to last. The car has gotten a bad rap because it is really one of the most kind of perfect designs as an aesthetic exercise. It's hard to imagine a car from the era being more clean and purposeful and elegant than the B-Turbo. I also am a big fan of the Citroen SM as well, who is in the chapter Brutal Power. I love that car particularly. It's really one of the most beautiful cars that has ever been made. And it's not so famous as the Citroen DS. I've written, I think, if the DS is a work of art, SM is a masterpiece. It's a, a wonderful car. It stands in front of an apartment in Zurich, which is an apartment dominated by concrete and wood, which shows the brutal force as well. But the Citroen has a very soft side as well. Its looks are rather soft, but it has a powerful engine by Maserati. There, Maserati is again. Citroëns are truly the most remarkable outliers in the car world. You mentioned the DS21, which of course was probably the most advanced car of the 50s in so many ways. And the SM was indeed, as, as you say, a masterpiece and just light years ahead of it. For connoisseurs of artistic perfection in an automobile, it's hard to beat an SM. Of course, it's also hard to keep one running sometimes because they're very complicated machines. But that's what car collectors seek, you know, something special. And they have become very rare. A few months ago, I was visiting a collector and he had six of these. Good heavens. Yeah, he, he owns some of the very, very rare convertibles built by Henri Chaperon. These are even more amazing cars. I suspect I may have seen some of those cars at the Chantilly Concours a few years ago, the Richard Mille Concours outside of Paris. There was a field of some remarkable Citroëns, some which, of course, I'd never seen before, one of one or one of a handful. And it got me thinking about how strange and special those cars are. There's an interesting sort of coexistence between the building and the automobile that you highlight in the book when you talk about Frank Lloyd Wright. There was a great quote in there that said, a car is not a horse, it doesn't need a barn. Tell us about Frank Lloyd Wright's relationship with the automobile and architecture. Frank Lloyd Wright was very passionate about cars as well. He himself, he drove a lot of very collectible cars. He had, amongst others, a Cord, Cord L. 29. But cars influenced his architecture also very strongly. He probably was the first to use the word carport. The first carport was not built by Wright himself, but he was the first one to use the word and to introduce it. It was a colleague of his who built the first one, probably in 1909. But afterwards, it was widely adopted by the so-called Prairie School, the, the first real American architectural style. One of the first houses where cars were parked inside also came from Wright. It was the Roney House in Chicago also built in the same period in 1909, which had uh, three garages. It had a car wash and a grease pit to work on the cars. I think that's what everybody wants in their house today. <laughs> Every car person dreams of a garage like that. Yeah, but the idea of having a garage was very strange at the time. To put a car in your house, it was a strange thing. Whereas now I have seen some garages where, in fact, the house is built around the garage, where the garage is, is a sort of central space in 
the house. You've got some great images in the book of instances like that with a Porsche Speedster visible from inside and some other instances where the cars really become objects of art unto themselves. Sometimes they really make living rooms from their garages. Yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright was interesting because in the 50s, German importer Max Hoffman was instrumental in bringing some very important cars to the fore. Everything from the Mercedes Gullwing to the BMW 507, the Porsche Speedster. He had a Jag showroom, I guess, in Park Avenue in New York City, and Frank Lloyd Wright even designed that space. A compliment to the Guggenheim, as it were, with a big ramp and all that. So he built the Guggenheim. The screw shape, which we see there, actually had a history which went back at the time to 1924, when he designed a resort on top of the Sugarlove Mountain in Maryland. So he designed that at the time. He used the spiraling form already there, but it was never built and the project was rejected. He tried it and tried it again later in other projects, but then it took until 1954 when he designed the the Jaguar uh, showroom you talk about and later the Guggenheim uh, Museum, which is the Guggenheim Museum would describe it as a parking tower full of art. It was his masterpiece, but when it was opened in 1959, not everybody was enthusiastic about it. Critics talked about washing machine and these kinds of things. But right, he himself, he didn't mind because he had died six months earlier. So uh, Fascinating stuff was going on in America then, and certainly in Southern California with all the case study houses and down in the Southern California desert, there were great things going on. And there's some wonderful pictures of some big American iron parked in front of some of these structures. And that's really where you can sort of imagine great finned monster from Cadillac or Lincoln or Chrysler having a perfect home in some of these large modern homes of the era. And it's interesting that one of the most advanced cars of its age was the Studebaker Avante. And that car was actually uh, designed by Raymond Lowy and his team in a house in Palm Springs. So it's kind of fun how all of this stuff comes together, you know, architecture and cars really sort of joined at the hip from the very beginning. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Let's talk about some of your favorite cars, Bert. What are some of the other cars in the book that really jump out and grab you? One of these cars is the Ferrari 250 GT short wheelbase. I think that's one of the most beautiful Ferraris ever made. It's way more beautiful than the 250 GTO, which was never built to be beautiful. It was a a racing machine, but by now the GTO is probably the most expensive car in the world. But that's because of his pedigree in racing and because of its rarity. There are only 39 of these built. But the short wheelbase, the GT, is one of the most beautiful things that came out of the pen at Pinifarinas. I totally agree. What a great car. And a beautiful photograph of a pretty red one in your book. Yeah, and another one which is so beautiful is the Lancia Flaminia, the super sport by Zagato. It is one of these very, very beautiful cars out of history. It's uh, when you see it, it has a certain modesty. It's not it's not a car which is very expensive 
impressive, but it's, it's so simple and so beautiful. It's an amazing car. When it comes to exquisite designs and cars that were so pure and, and incredibly built, by the way, Lancia was always at the forefront. Yeah, they were very, very good at the time. Later, they have had a lot of problems and, and Lancias have become less reliable and, and more fragile. But at the time... Back in the day, they were something. You were mentioning the old Mercedes. Personally, I like cars which are very durable and which can survive forever, uh, if possible. Ah, that's coming from a Saab man, so I can appreciate it. Which Mercedes is that? The W123, 123. That's the old E-Class, right? Yes, that one. I've seen a lot of cars, or, or at least some of these cars, with more than 1 million kilometers. It's a magic thing. It's a taxi, it's a cab, but it's a brilliant car. And the, the funny thing is, I don't know how Americans appreciate these cars, but in Europe and in certainly in Belgium, we have a lot of young people who are really fond of these. They buy them when they're 18 or, or 20 years old and they, they love driving it. So uh, I love them myself as well. I have to say, an old E-Class wagon is really hard to beat, both aesthetically, functionally, and just in terms of its mark that it sort of made on history. A lot of the cars in your book are rare, uh, although some are not so rare. You've got some great Porsche 911s in there. I have to say, that's always a pleasure to see one of the early 911s in a great architectural setting. The 911, in fact, it's one of the cars that I grew up with as a kid. My father didn't have a 911, but I had, I had an uncle who had one. I was about nine or 10 years old, and I remember a lot of driving around with that car. I was very proud when I sat in it. It was probably the first sports car in which I drove as a kid. Tell us about your own car journey. It started with this 911. Where did it go from there? When it comes to my own cars, it's quite simple. As I said, I like durable cars and I'm 41 years old and I only have bought four cars in my life, but I still have three of them. That is great advice to give anyone don't get rid of your cars. Yeah, I can't sell a car. It's impossible. So I have that Saab 900, which I used as a daily car for, for 12 years. It's 29 years old right now. It's to the workshop because it has some rust, which has to be repaired. But I want to keep it forever. So I'm spending some money on that car. And then my daily car is a very simple Mini Cooper. And then for uh, beautiful sunny days, I have a Lotus Elise. Good heavens. Which I bought six years ago and I can't get rid of as well. It's uh, it's a car which I want to keep for forever. The Elise, is, its handling is, is very good. You, you sit very, very low, it's hard, and you don't need a big engine to have fun. Certainly nowadays, traffic rules have become really strict here in Europe, but the, gar the cars still give me uh, tons of, of, uh, of driving pleasure. You know, Bert, you might have hit on something there. You talk about driving rules becoming more stringent, and certainly in America, it's hard to take a car much over 80 miles an hour, 85 miles an hour without going well afoul of the law. And I think people are coming to appreciate cars that do more than just go fast or cars that have oodles of power. And it's interesting that manufacturers continue to force five and six and seven and 800 horsepower cars on us when the real pleasure is to be had in more subtle things like that Elise or frankly, back in its day, the 33 Stradale, the Alfa Romeo that was small, lightweight. And even though it was a very powerful engine for its time, it did these things without being vulgar. And I think cars like the Elise or, or cars like the little Alfa 4C are really the ultimate in refinement. That's what makes a car that matters. It's a car that can do a lot of things without having to go to excessive extremes. 
I'm curious, Lotus, they announced that they will stop the, the production of the Elise later this year and the entire uh, model range will be replaced. And I'm, I'm very curious with, with what they'll come up, if, if they will be able to preserve the real character of the cars, the light, simple and not overpowered uh, cars. I, uh, I'm curious, but I'm quite optimistic. The Chinese have saved Volvo in the past, Geely, and now they are the owners of, of Lotus uh, as well. It's a good thing with, with Volvo, so Lotus might have a, a bright future as well. Well, let's hope so, because they're certainly some of the most novel and remarkable cars and historically some of the most important. Well, it sounds like you've got a few cars you're never going to let go of. Yeah, well, a few years ago, I've made another book. It's called Car Crush. We've selected 35 collectors that I visited. What strikes me very, very much when I visit a collector is what they call long-time ownership. People who keep their cars for the rest of their lives. That's very special. For example, an, an old man in Brussels in his 80s who had a Citroën DS, which he had driven for more than 45 years as a daily car. He bought it new in, in 1974, if I remember well, and I met him in his 80s and he still that was still his, his car. These kind of stories where people really are very attached to a car, that's wonderful. Thanks to Bert Voot, author of Carchitecture, Houses with Horsepower, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by Chris Porter. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.